In war, destruction is everywhere. It eats everything around you. Sometimes it eats at you. Major Scott Husing, Echo Company Commander, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marine Regiment. Major Husing is my guest for this week's podcast. And we discussed his upcoming book, Echo and Ramadi. The release date is February 20th at bookstores everywhere. You can reserve your copy on Amazon.com right now. We discussed Africa, why U.S. troops are there fighting. And we discussed his book, Echo and Ramadi, and several other topics, including leadership. As Major Husing was the commanding officer for Echo Company as they fought in 2007 in Ramadi, in one of the most dangerous places in the world at that time. I'm your host, John Hendricks. This is this week's Global Recon Podcast. I'm on with retired Marine Corps Major Scott Husing. Uh, Scott, how's it going? Great. How are you today, John? Thanks for having me on. I'm good. I'm good. And uh, thanks for coming on. I know um, we have a couple of things to talk about. You have a, a book coming out uh, in a couple of months. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the book. Uh, we're going to talk about some of your background and your experiences in the, the Marine Corps. Um, but you know, before we jump into that, I know you spent some time in Africa uh, doing some work over there. And uh, just recently, uh, it was reported that three Green Berets were killed uh, in action in Western Mali and Niger. And uh, just a couple of minutes ago, I saw a news report that said they confirmed a, a fourth uh, casualty. And uh, I posted on social media about the, uh, the the DOD released the names of the three guys who were reported killed initially, and I posted, and, and some people were commenting, like, you know, why would there be American troops in Africa? And um, people really don't seem to realize that there is a, this threat of terrorism really is a, a global threat. And, and these groups, you know, operate, you know, wherever they can in a place like Africa, where perhaps the government you know, whatever location it is that they're at, the government maybe isn't so stable and it's it's a little easier for them to uh, kind of have some autonomy and, you know, run their training and, and do do what it is that they do. Uh, can we talk just a little bit about the, the threat in Africa? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I think it's important for the the U.S. military and part of that global presence uh, entails working with joint partnerships uh, across the globe. Um, and, and that's um, part of what the uh, U.S. Army Special Forces mission is to do 
is to assist those um, you know struggling and uh, emerging and also developing countries help their militaries um, get training, gain ground, and um, build legitimacy to what they do within their region of the world. Um, so um, our our special forces are are obviously. Uh, I'm a little biased, but, uh, you know, they're the best at what they do in the world. And they have a unique understanding of how to go into an area. Um, and some of those areas that they go into, John, are, are extremely volatile, uh, I think, in, in measures. Of, and, and, and they're unsafe areas wherever they go. But they're extremely dedicated professional soldiers and Marines that operate with under the U.S. Special Forces Command. And that are always willing to uh, not only do the, take on the risks that are associated with them to uh, make partnerships that we have, whether it's a training exercise or whether it's an ongoing military operation that is being conducted, they have that's part of their mission, and that's what they sign on to do. So um, I think uh, it's it's not a not a, a real mystery, uh, perhaps that uh, it's something that just does not go. Uh, as advertised in mainstream media that uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, get coverage for. Yeah, and I think, you know, when people, uh, when they think about the wars, I guess they just kind of, it's like a passing thought. It's not something that most people pay attention to. And, um, you know, they they call it the global war on terror for a reason, right? I mean, you got, um, you know, outside of Africa, Iraq, and Afghanistan, you also have the, a place like the Philippines, where there's a, a big uh, kind of terrorist uh, footprint, and uh, you know the government there has a uh, their hands full fighting different groups. And um, I mean, and a lot of it's all connected. I mean, they a, a lot of these fighters, where people don't understand, like in a, let's say a place like Syria, you know, right now there's a a big war happening there, and what people don't seem to understand is a lot of times there'll be the people from the region who are fighting uh, amongst themselves, but then there's also a lot of foreign fighters. So there's a lot of people from Africa, a lot of people from the Philippines and, and elsewhere who would go to the Middle East and fight in these, uh, these conflicts. And, um, you know, U S forces have been fighting foreign fighters in places like Iraq for a long time. I'm, I'm sure that's something you're familiar with, uh, with, with some of your time in Iraq. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you hit the nail on the head, John, with some of the key uh, phraseology he uses. We, we, we call it the, the global war on terror for a reason, because it's, it's in every country, just about uh, whether we see it on the news or not, whether it's in Europe or Asia or the Pacific Rim or on the, the continent of Africa. Uh, this, this is also called the long war, which we refer to it as because we understand at uh, certain levels uh, within our government, with our military at the strategic level, that this is a battle against an ideology of and these extremists that want to promote their their goal. And the, it's, it's, it's not a short fight. It's going to take us years and years to deal with the problems and find specific solutions to really eradicate this. So the other free free countries in the world don't have to suffer this type of, of insurgency or terrorism that uh, tends to embed itself into uh, these pockets of least resistance. 
So they may gravitate to those areas in the Horn of Africa. They may gravitate to those areas in the Pacific Rim where they can go relatively untouched to conduct training, um, to spread their their uh, ideology. And, and that makes sense because for the most part, uh, they don't want to stand toe-to-toe with conventional U.S. force. They'll just wind up losing in the end. And I think that's that's part of their strategy. And, and it's a smart strategy when you're a smaller less equipped force than to go up against uh, a traditional uh, army or uh, an organization like the United States Marine Corps that is uh, one of the most technologically advanced uh, fighting forces in the world. It's just uh, really uh, uh, spells it out uh, as as far as how interconnected they all are, though, within these different areas, Um, whether that's uh, the most prevalent one, which is ISIS, which, again, you mentioned Syria uh, and in the Middle East as we you know, possibly stand on the precipice of another battle in the Middle East with ISIS to try and root out that um, that in, that insurgency and uh, the, the agenda that they have to impose. I don't think it's any secret that in May of 2015, ISIS seized a key city in Iraq, which was Ramadi. In uh, my book, Echo and Ramadi, where we fought during the Second Battle of Ramadi in 2006 and 2007, I, none of us had a crystal ball, John, back then and, and said, you know, if, we, if things go bad or if we lose here, or we don't fight, we're going to be back here in 10 years. We didn't see that happening. But the events that come through in the news and the media, obviously it happened in 2015. That was the target city that ISIS chose to gain a hold of as the capital of Al-Anbar province, uh, which was... Uh, close to the border of Syria. So they had these porous lines of movement from both Syria and into Iraq to further their cause. So, you know, you spent a number of years in the United States Marine Corps. What was the total number of time served? I enlisted in the Marine Corps in uh, 1989. Uh, I, I served in Operation Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and then uh, got my degree and uh, my commission as an officer. So after 24 years uh, and serving in over 60 different countries worldwide and 10, 10 deployments, I've got a, a little bit of experience uh, with uh, the military and political climate uh, globally. So that that's kind of an interesting path uh, when you talk about you enlisted and then you became an officer I I uh I think it kind of gives you a, a better understanding of uh, some of the the dynamics of like a team and a unit um you know and and, and we'll do some talking about leadership as well I, I it's something I would like to get your take on uh so you spent uh 24 years in the Marine Corps and you you say you served in um uh Desert Storm so I, so then you were at what point was it that you were in Ramadi, uh, and 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 uh, at what point was it where what you wrote about in your book took place? So uh, I was in Ramadi in 2006 during the surge strategy, which um, was ordered by uh, General Dave Petraeus and supported by uh, then uh, President influx of troops onto the battlefield that you know to surge the troops um 
we uh, were part of the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, which came into the Arabian Gulf with 2,500 specially trained uh, Marines and soldiers to be part of that search strategy. And once we got into country, they took uh, our unit specifically and spread us out into the those areas that had the worst pockets of resistance, uh, one of which was Ramadi, Iraq, the deadliest city in, in Alambar province. Yeah, I know Ramadi, there was a, a, a lot of heavy fighting going on there. And there was also a lot of foreign fighters as well, uh, being so close to the border with Syria. Uh, I know that's something that the U.S., it was a problem for the United States uh, forces who are fighting there, you know, for you guys. And um, I mean, Ramadi was just really a, a crazy place to be in 2006, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it, it was one of the worst. I mean, it was the, the deadliest city in Iraq in 2006. I mean, there's. There's no other way to put it. And, you know, at my level as a company commander uh, working for the Army task force, uh, leading over 250 men in Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marine Regiment, we had an opportunity to really change the face of operations on the battlefield um, and, and the world, really, because the dynamics changed that quickly in that type of urban fight. And my Marines stood in the line of fire daily in Ramadi, uh, which was probably one of the most densely populated areas of insurgent activity at the time. And I'm always proud to say that the heroics that, you know, they performed in war um, never ceased to amaze me. Uh, they, they fought and died helping so many people that couldn't help themselves. And that's really what the true spirit of what Marines do. And it wasn't a matter of uh, if we were going to get engaged by the insurgency um, in Ramadi in 06, 07, it was when and how often. We could literally set our watches by uh, how and how often we'd get attacked from the insurgents. Uh, normally, obviously, at morning and evening prayer is the, the mosque called a prayer at least twice a day. But oftentimes we'd be engaged in indirect contact with the enemy and, you know, firefights lasting up to five hours, uh, two to three times a day. Yeah, that's just like nonstop fighting. Um, and how long were you in Ramadi for that tour? We were in Ramadi for uh, the first several months of our deployment that lasted 10 months. And the the story that uh, I tell in my book, Echo and Ramadi, which comes out in February of 2018, is a 10-month snapshot in time that tells the story of my company and the collective discipline that was exhibited by these brave young men. Um, you know, it really turned out to be a, a series of life-saving vigilance and, and patience and love that was demonstrated by um these young men who, in, in my opinion, really possess a strong sense of personal character. And in that environment, these Marines lived in the worst conditions and they fought day in and day out in a world of uncertainty, but with most certain danger. And they did it extremely well. And it's interesting to talk about the Marines specifically, and, and obviously I'm a little biased on, but you know, it's not that the Marines are the most lethal weapons on the battlefield. It's not that they're the straightest shooters, that they 
they kill and engage targets with lethality, but they do it with honor and they do it for a purpose in a sense to not only save the, the, their brothers standing next to them, but also help those people that need, need the help. And that's part of their mission. Um, and, and so you need characteristics that it probably took me uh, some, some time and years and age and wisdom to figure out, but, um, uh, it's not only that they're the most highly trained warriors on the battlefield and they attack and engage the enemy with an unbridled ferocity that makes them so great, but it's also the fact that within the Marine Corps and within our U S military, it's comprised of all different types of people, artisans and musicians and singers and poets and yeah, sometimes writers that these unique skills and the diverse cross-section of America that our U.S. military has is really what makes it extremely unique and something that's really made me proud to be a part of that I spent, you know, almost 25 years of my life serving. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point to bring up. I mean, if you, um, you know, if you want to, you want to talk about like the, the the diverse group that serves in the United States military, you could, you know, you can go back to like the Great Wars and World War One, World War Two. You know, they were fighting platoons and units. You know, fighting in Europe, and they were comprised of people from all different backgrounds and nationalities, but all fighting. Uh, under the American flag fighting for the United States. And I think part of that is what really is the strength of the U S it's such a diverse group and you, you get all different kinds of experiences and, and um, ways of solving problems and, and all that with the, the group that's, you know, comprised of the United States Marine Corps and, and really any other, any other group that's either in combat arms or supporting combat arms, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I would imagine that uh, leading Marines in combat is not an easy task. Uh, could you talk about some of what made it complex and how you had to adjust as the commanding officer in order to accomplish your mission? Yeah, it's, it is a challenge, and it's something that uh, most commanders uh, are and honored to take on. I, I was extremely grateful to served alongside and, and led some of the best men, uh, especially during that deployment that I've ever known in my life. And we still stay very inextricably connected to this day, even 10 years after we fought Ramadi. But to dis describe it is uh, a challenge because combat is not a natural event. It's created by humans. And oftentimes it's, you know, created by those that sit blindly in pronouncement of other people's fate who really never understand that um, that unrelenting tide that goes back and forth for those who fight for their freedom. And they'll experience that type of savagery that it encompasses or, or the emptiness in its absence, John, uh, you know, both in the, the hearts and minds of, of the Marines. Uh, it, it, it's an everlasting uh, impact to those guys that have to experience that type of, of danger. Um, there were times in Ramadi in 2006 uh, that were so dynamic and so chaotic. I, I refer to it oftentimes as friction. 
and this friction that we experienced is almost uh, unexplainable, but it's can best be described as periods of extreme boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror and chaos that is uncontrollable. And as a leader in that type of environment, the first thing I had to understand was the men I was leading. And to do that, you have to uh, understand the men themselves at the individual level and really get to know them and to gain their trust, uh, not only uh, through leading by example and, and, and doing those things that uh, you, you would never ask your Marines to do that you wouldn't do yourself. Um, I always not, you know, subscribe to the notion that, um, you know, if there was gear to be moved, I was right alongside the Marines moving it. If there was, uh, you know, uh, a troll, I was on it. If there was a firefight, I was in it. And I never, ever subscribed to the adage, um, as an officer, uh, you know, coming from the enlisted side to the officer side, I never subscribed to the adage, John, that officers need to know their place, which, you know, would say that uh, officers should be seen doing menial tasks that their junior Marines would would normally be doing. I, I just never believed in that because I was part of a team and I always believed that wherever my Marines were, that's where I belonged. And I don't think uh, there was any ever doubt in my mind that that's where I was supposed to be. So um, it's a challenge. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different challenges in an environment like that when you're fighting an intensely kinetic um, firefight in an urban environment. Um, the training that the Marines receive is a- absolutely phenomenal, for one. And I, I use an analogy that um, – there's these young young men that are on average age about 20 to 22 years old. And I always say that I, I never had any reservation about giving a, a young enlisted guy, a young Lance Corporal or, or Sergeant, uh, a machine gun, a box of ammunition and some enemy targets to engage. And I never had a doubt that he would be able to take that weapon system and go from zero to 60 like a race car and engage that enemy with accuracy and lethality. But in the absence of that chaos to have that same Marine go from 60 to zero, that's the real leadership challenge is being able to make sure that they understand when and where and how to apply that type of force is extremely challenging for a leader uh, in an environment like that. Um, And we were fortunate not only did the, the junior enlisted Marines have the best training in the world, but the leadership that was demonstrated by my officers in Echo Company um, also really made a difference between life and death on most days. But they, they were lucky, though. They were very fortunate to have some of the best and most seasoned senior enlisted Marines by their side to guide them along the way. And their training was equally, if not harder than that of the enlisted Marines. And I, and I say that because I was an enlisted Marine uh, at one point, but they have a amazing challenge ahead of them as young lieutenants uh, when they join the Marine Corps. And I know the army is not much different, but my lieutenants and my Marines in training, they would never be as hot or as cold 
or as tired or as hungry or as fatigued in combat as they were in training. And that's how it's supposed to be. You know, whether it's in the school of infantry for the young enlisted guys or in the infantry officers course or under my command, I always made those Marines train as if it was the last day and always required more of them than anyone else because that's what's needed to be a Marine. And I never let them forget that. Um, I always told them one thing, and I told this to many Marines, is that there's no such thing as combat leadership, just leadership. You know, I never subscribed to the idea that because one had been in combat or shot at or injured, it made them a better leader. Leaders lead in any condition, John. And then there might be some that shine a little bit brighter under those chaotic conditions in combat. But real leaders, again, can control those situations in the absence of chaos because training for restlessness and boredom is really not a mission essential task. It's it's something a good leader just has to know how to deal with to keep his Marines sharp when the madness begins. Do you feel like where you started as you enlisted in the Marine Corps and then you made that transition as an, into an officer, being an officer in the Marine Corps. Do you feel like that gave you a, a better understanding of the dynamics of the team and, and of your younger Marines? I think it gave me an understanding. It gives me, uh, it most certainly gave me a different perspective because I could obviously relate to some of the, the things that junior Marines have to deal with. Um, I don't think uh, as a Mustang officer, and they, they call they call us Mustangs, those that have a little bit of both in them, both enlisted and officer. I, d I don't think for any officer, having been enlisted at one point or another, makes them any better or worse. I, I truly don't. And that goes back to, you know, my philosophy about leadership. There's, there's no thing as leadership, just leadership. And whether you're enlisted or, uh, you know, you came out of the, uh, the Naval Academy or Annapolis or you went straight into boot camp. If you're dedicated to being a student of your trade uh, as a professional soldier, as a Marine, um, you're going to excel and, and you're going to you're going to succeed in the military. Uh, and I was very attuned to what the young Marines uh, thought, but I don't ever think it made me a better officer um, for all intents and purposes. OK, so you feel like the, the leadership piece is is what it is, regardless of being enlisted or an officer? I do. I think that um, when I made the decision as a young, young corporal to uh, go to college and then serve as a machine gunner in the reserve Marine forces uh, while I got my commission, uh, I think that it just added to my overall experience. It just gave me some additional perspective that some don't have. But I don't think that it made me a better officer. I think it just made me um, understand a little bit more about what the, the, the young enlisted men had to deal with. One of the key things, though, John, is that as a leader and as a planner, uh, as I moved up in the ranks, I, I also understood how valuable the time was for those junior Marines. And I never, ever wanted to waste an opportunity to train. And I never wanted Marines sitting around. I never wanted soldiers sitting around not training. And if they weren't training, uh, they should have been left to their own devices, whether whether they were out decompressing or enjoying their free time. 
but I never wanted them sitting around doing mindless tasks. And that was something that I was adamant about that I tried to impose at every level of command uh, and every billet of leadership that I ever held. So your book, uh, you described it as a, a 10 month, uh, a snapshot of the, the 10 month uh, that you spent there in uh, Ramadi. Um, would you be able to share a story from a deployment or maybe uh, a story from the book with the audience? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, what, uh, first let me say that when I wrote this book, um, it, it, it was a long journey and is really a story about brotherhood and shared diversity. And I say story because although it's nonfiction, it, it really does read like a novel and it's the story of echo company. Um, and, and that 10 month snapshot in time, um, that is graphically depicted, uh, about the excitement that is really only known to those who survived this intense urban combat during operation Iraqi freedom. Uh, moreover, I wrote this book to honor the sacrifices and spirit of my Marines and the families that supported us, not only while we fought, but the families that still continue to support us to this day. And it's, it's really my tribute to them. And I'm honored and, and humbled to be able to tell this story so that the, the readers will feel the pain and the emotion and sometimes the laughter of it all under the worst circumstances, but also the intensity and that friction that I talk about that I try to describe in unvarnished detail. Um, because one of the things I strove for as I developed the story and what, what made it so successful um, was that it talks about people uh, in the emotion and the feeling. For me, everything that I write about is always about the feeling. I think that there's a time and place to write about things and events, uh, but if you want to read about things and events, you normally pick up a newspaper. Uh, what Echo and Ramadi talks about is all of those things that most people would say, I never thought that happened. I, I, I thought that only happened in the movies, but it did. And then there's things you read within the story that you understand those things never happen in the movies. It's just not like that because I go into that raw, unvarnished detail of, of what happens to my, my guys on the battlefield. And uh, this, this story is so unique because it involves not only my Marines and what they went through, but it also involves the families, um, my, my gold star families that are such a huge part of everything we do, John. Um, and they continue to support us to this day, um, knowing that although they lost a son in combat, that we as Marines, we also lost brothers and it was uh, incredibly hard for us. And it was incredibly hard for um, the families um, because we take on that sacrifice. They don't, the families simply lost. And it's very unique to understand this, this very, very small segment of the American population, our goals, our families that despite having lost so much, they continue to love us so much and 
it is extraordinary to me because these people aren't ordinary. They're extraordinary that they continue to lose, uh, but they also still stay so connected to us and they've helped us through this journey of healing. And maybe that was one of the reasons that I, after 10 years, this was the right time to write Echo and Ramadi was because they'd had that time to decompress. They've had that time to process all of those emotions and, and things that they dealt with in, in a world that they saw the worst conditions of humanity. Uh, I think the, the timing was really right to tell this story. And, and, and that's what came through out of the for 85 personal interviews I did with my Marines and the soldiers and, and the families that were involved. Yeah, that, that, that's, you know, talking about the, um, you know, the gold star families and the, that connection that's made, you know, even after they lose, you know, their son or their, their brother, their cousin and, uh, you know, or, or father, husband, you know, it's, um, it's really incredible just to see that how dedicated they are as, as family, you know, to, you know, to the Marine Corps or the army or the air force or the Navy. And, um, you know, and like you said, it's such a small percentage of, of Americans who, who fall into that gold star category. But, um, and then I think, I guess, you know, kind of building on that, it's really a small percentage of Americans who go into combat to begin with, you know? It is. I, I, I think, I think, like I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's widely, widely unknown that even though the, the infantry, whether in the army or the Marines is, the, you know, the infantry is a pretty, pretty big group. Um, but the guys that go into combat and, and I say guys, I mean, men and women that go into combat, um, that are either in infantry units or support infantry units, the percentage that actually see combat is an even smaller percentage of that. And the guys that actually are engaged in firefights that are doing uh, the hard work, you know, that actually squeeze the trigger on the rifle and engage the enemy, that percentage is even smaller. And that's an interesting uh, point that you bring up, John, is that they're a very small segment of the population. And uh, when we think about this in context, it, 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 it is something that is really energized me, not only through my writing and through my public speaking, but also through the charity work that I do with uh, my foundation called Save the Brave, which was started by one of my junior Marines, who was a young machine gunner in Echo Company uh, back in 2015, where, where he saw the need to build that network of family, this amazing network that we're all connected to to help those veterans that are dealing with some of the effects of post-traumatic stress uh, who've experienced some of the most terrifying and gruesome facets of combat because they're affected. And that small percentage of guys, they actually fall into a higher percentage of those dealing with PTS through their experiences. And that is especially true with grunts. And um, there are plenty of guys that are on active duty with PTS right now. and I like to think that they might be compared to 
you know, highly functioning alcoholics. They have a problem. They get through the day without being found out. They're still great Marines and soldiers. They still do their jobs. They still get awards. They're still successful. They're still commanders, but they push it to the side. And there's others that, that are around them on active duty to this day that they discount it or worse, they ignore it. Some believe that it's really only a problem for the, you know, quote unquote, weak of mind. And they experience uh, or use as an excuse to justify their their odd behavior or their their own behavior that they simply don't understand because uh, they think that they're impervious to it. And I like to say that they can dismiss it all they want and they can have other reasons for why they blame their quick tempers or lack of concentration or whatever it is. But it catches up to you one way or the other because being in combat is such a strange, chaotic, and sometimes exhilarating experience, all wrapped up into one. Um, I would go into situations that were so volatile and dynamic on the battlefield, John, that I, I rarely thought about the worst outcome, but they happened. And I continued. I pressed forward visually with my mission to help others or destroy others that opposed it, obviously the insurgents. But I did this with the safety of my fellow Marines surrounding me. And they surrounded me like this giant yet lethal protective bubble guarding me. And every Marine took care of one another as their main concern. And for some, it's a, a challenge oftentimes to deal with the fact that when they return home, that that protective bubble is no longer around them physically. And it really creates a sense of vulnerability and abandonment, loneliness, and most times anxiety uh, because the Marines miss that brotherhood. Um, and it, it manifests itself in a lot of different forms that we've seen. Uh, some drink and do drugs, some overeat, some seclude themselves, they check off the network, they lock their doors two or three times at night before going to bed, some sleep with loaded weapons under their pillows, the list is really endless, but whatever form it takes, they are looking for a way to insulate themselves from the, the absence of that bubble because it may sound cliche, but it, it's very, very true, John, is that Marines will always have a calling. Soldiers will always have a calling. Uh, or for, This applies to our first responders in America, too, is that they will always have this sense of duty and courage to run towards danger when others run from it. And in the when the Marines and the veterans that I deal with through Save the Brave, you know, they still find themselves on the edge in absence of that danger because from their entry level training or even in, through their early stages in life, they are programmed to protect or to fight and remain alert, even when there's a limited threat. But in their minds, they're still telling them that they need to live on the on the edge. And for some, unfortunately, it's it's too much to cope with. And that's where we've really run into the the tragedy of the high suicide rate that we're experiencing in our nation with uh, with our our military veterans. And again, coming full circle to how we began this part of the conversation, John, was our gold star families um, are not limited to those that we lost on the battlefield. Uh, we lose over. 20 uh, 
two Marines, uh, 22 veterans a day uh, to the effects of post-traumatic stress and, and suicide. And those numbers are only the reported ones. And out of the almost 6,000 uh, veterans that we've lost during this long war in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, there's countless others that we've lost to the effects of suicide uh, and, and post-traumatic stress. And, and, and there's no memorial for those warriors, some of whom fought equally beside us in Ramadi, in Fallujah, in Baghdad. They, too, fought. And even though they left the battlefield, they continue to fight their own battles. And there's no memorial that has their name etched in a large granite wall. And we're very lucky to have great organizations out there that, that realize this. And we're making uh, great strides to help those people that, that are that are reaching out for help. You know, I think the, um, you know, that kind of uh, that attitude of, you know, guys being weak, uh, if they're going through some issues, I think that's kind of like a really old school kind of uh, approach to it, you know, because the, what we now know as uh, PTSD or PTS has really been around for as long as uh, humans have been fighting wars. They just had different names for them. And um, I believe in World War II, they called it shell shock. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the generation from, you know, the 1940s, 1930s, it, it, things were just done differently. People were, I guess, a little more private. And, and if you had issues, they would just kind of tell guys to suck it up, you know, and, um, and that's just kind of the way they did things. But, you know, society has gone through some evolutions and changes and we just do things a little differently these days. And aside from guys experiencing issues with the actions that, that they've seen or, or survived, you know, in combat, there's physical brain damage as well. You know, I mean, they, um, you know, they're, they're doing studies on uh, NFL players' brains who have passed away and I think the number is like 90% of them have brain damage, you know, and, and these are guys, obviously mm -hmm. these are big, strong guys, you know, hitting each other over a number of years. But imagine what happens to a human brain when they're, you know, they're in, in confined spaces that are being overly concussed. You know, you're, you're breaching a door or you're, you're firing a rifle, or live ammunition, or in many cases, you know, driving over IEDs or being in the vicinity of vicinity of an IED that goes off. So uh, people in combat arms are, are experiencing brain damage at a tremendously high level. And some of that or a lot of that is really what has a lot to do with the change in behavior and the, the high suicide rates, you know? Yeah, the... There's obviously there's some psychological effects that uh, veterans suffer from, but there's also a very large percentage that have uh, the physiological effects of you know the traumatic brain injuries, which can be um, likened to those of NFL football players. And it, it we're lucky, I think, that we have the the resources now that have improved since World War II, and I think that we're very fortunate that there's greater awareness and whether that awareness comes through mainstream media, whether that awareness comes through social media and all of the great smaller nonprofit organizations like save the brave, uh, help these veterans connect and deal with their, their issues. I think that's an amazing thing. Uh, 
because one of the things that I've noticed uh, being the executive director of Save the Brave is there's so many smaller nonprofits out there that are willing to be what I call mutually supporting. If, if they don't have the resources or expertise, they know someone that does and they give freely of their time. They give freely of uh, their energy and a lot of times money to facilitate and fund programs to help our veterans that are dealing with these issues heal. And that's important to me. I, I feel that we are kind of lucky in this day and age because of the awareness that we've generated for this, this, this huge issue. Yeah. You know, that the whole piece about, uh, you know, kind of the positive effects of social media and, and things like that, I think is spot on. And I feel like we are closer than we've been probably in any point in history to figuring out some of these uh, issues that uh, men and women who have physical brain damage are dealing with. I mean, it, it's not just in the, you know, it's not just in the military, but even in society where not very advanced in, in how to deal with some of these problems, you know? Um, but I, I, like, like you said, I think the awareness that's been raised through mainstream media, social media, um, you know, people just everyday Americans who want to help out in some way that they can, it's really, we've been able to make strides and there are very, uh, unique organizations out there who specialize in brain injuries and how to treat them and, uh, you know, things like that. And I, I think we've really made some great strides in figuring, uh, the brain damage piece out. Um, so yeah, it's, you, it's spot on. It's spot on. And it, it, you know, while we're on the, the topic of NFL, it, I was, uh, recently in Washington DC and I was, I was out visiting, uh, my, my publisher, Regnery Publishing, and uh, one of the uh, the staff members uh, who had read excerpts from the book had, had pinned me down and was asking me about some of these topics we were just talking about, about the effects of uh, post-traumatic stress. They were talking about the chaos and the friction that I described in the book. And they're really, to the, to the layperson or to the, the general population, they, they have a hard time understanding how men and women can endure that type of daily friction and that type of pressure that they're constantly under to make those types of decisions at such a young age. So I use another analogy is that I, I, I said, imagine if you were in the NFL and you practiced every day, every single week throughout the week. And on Sunday, there was never a game. That's what our U.S. military sees as their final test in combat. And over the last 12, 14 years during this long war, that's it for them. It's been game day every day for the last 14 years because they train for months and months on end and they have no compunction when it comes time to game day to fight and win. And I have news for everybody listening to the show, John, is we are winning. Whether it's portrayed that way on mainstream media, Uh, in the news we are winning and that is and the determined numbers that go out day in and day out and strap it on and really uh make that commitment to protect our nation 
And I think it's a remarkable thing. And I, I'm, I'm always in awe of everything they do. So you, you have your, your foundation that you're, you're, you know, heavily involved in, in, uh, working with Marines. Can, can you just explain some of what exactly it is your foundation does? Sure. Uh, Save the Brave is a certified nonprofit organization. Uh, we were started in 2015, and our mission is to connect veterans through outreach programs to build strength of character. And we do that by employing a very boots-on-the-ground mentality. We continue to uh, source our veterans through organizations like the uh, Los Angeles uh, Veterans Center, San Diego Veterans Center here in Southern California, which is where I live, and make sure that if there are veterans out there that need assistance, that we connect them. And we do this sometimes through offshore fishing trips. Sometimes we do it through retreats. But we found that there's no better medicine, there's no vaccine, there's no pill that the, the VA or a hospital can prescribe that's better for our veterans than getting together and connecting so that they can understand that they're not alone, that they have a place and that they have a purpose and that this family that I talk about, this network, is really an, alive. And if you are willing to become part of that network, uh, it's going to be key to your 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 mental health it's going to be key to uh, your sustainment and an overall drive to continue to fight and that's what a lot of these young warriors are dealing with uh, we're also very fortunate through save the brave to have a lot of resources at our disposal to provide uh, the necessary resources to guys that are struggling um, we work closely with uh, NRC and uh, dr. Dan Schuman who is in the LA area he professor to give advice to great things again is we always have resources at our disposal to direct those people um, to the resources they need another another great thing about save the brave is we are 100% nonprofit none of us on our board take a salary of any kind everything we do all the time and energy that we dedicate is committed to helping vets. That's all we care about. It's never about um, uh, the money. We have about six fundraisers every year that are balanced by about six to eight outreach programs that we conduct. Uh, just this week alone, we're, we're doing another networking event to help support veterans and get the word out there about what we do. And we're very lucky here in Southern California that in the community that I live close to Camp Pendleton, it is a very friendly uh, community that loves their veterans and they're never hesitant to reach out, grab hold and, and take care of those veterans and provide them with the resources they need. And it's something that when Nick Velez, who's the president of Save the Brave, uh, again, one of my young young infantrymen back in 2006 reached out to me and said, hey, hey sir, we uh, would love to get a little bit of your leadership to uh, to take the reins of of save the brave and, and, and help us, you know, move along in the right direction. I, I couldn't say no because it was for the right reasons. And Nick is a successful businessman up in LA and he's, a, he's, a, he's just another success story that came out of, of our company during that time. 
So if anyone in the audience is interested in, in learning more about your organization or keeping up with you and uh, keeping up with any updates on the book or anything related to the book, where can they go online or social media to do that? Sure. They can read about the book at my website at www.echo, E-C-H-O, in Ramadi, I-N-R-A-M-A-D-I.com. So that's www.echoinramadi.com. The book is now on pre-sale on Amazon. So if they want to buy their advanced copy, they can go to amazon.com and just type in Scott Hughesing or Echo and Ramadi and it'll pop right up and they can get their advanced copy, uh, which will be delivered on February 20th. If there's listeners out there that are interested in Save the Brave, they can go to www.savethebrave, that's S-A-V-E-T-H-E-B-R-A-V dot org, O-R-G. And they can donate, they can reach out, they can contact us. And oftentimes I tell people that are interested in charities that it's not always a big fat check that we want. We want people's services and we want people's time that are really willing to put some skin in the game, to commit, to spend four hours to support one of our events, volunteer their, their services. And it's not always about writing a check. It's, it's about getting out there and getting connected to the veterans that they, they want to be engaged with. And a lot of times people just don't know which charity to take on. So I ask your listeners that if they if they do want to put some skin in the game and connect to uh, some great veterans, Save the Brave is is one of those organizations that is 100 percent committed to supporting our nation's vets. And uh, the uh, the the things that they do uh, are are just life changing. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I want to thank you for uh, taking out the time to do this and coming on the podcast and. you know, I really look forward to reading your book, um, Echo and Ramadi. The The official release date is when? It's late February? February 20th of 2018. Okay, awesome. And it'll be available pretty much everywhere books are sold? or Yeah, it'll be available. It's available right now on Amazon for pre-order. It's also available on Kindle, but it'll be coming to every major bookstore uh, on February 20th on shelves everywhere. All right. That's awesome. So, you know, I definitely can't wait to get my hands on a a copy of it. Uh, So, again, I just want to thank you for taking out the time to do this. And also, I want to thank you for your service as well. Jay, I want to thank you, too, John, for uh, carrying on your show and and really sending out this message and, and all the great things you do, because I think it's vital that these messages are heard, that they're not lost. And uh, I really applaud the work you're doing to support nation's veterans. And I'm very, very grateful to have been on the show and been a part of it. So thank you, sir. If you are a regular listener of the podcast, we would kindly ask you to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. And that way we can have a better understanding of things that we might need to improve or things that we might need to continue to do uh, on this show. So with that, we will close out this week's podcast. If you're interested in keeping up with Major Husing and any information regarding his book, check out www.echoinramadi.com. That's E-C-H-O-I-N-R-A-M-A-D-I.com. 
He's on Facebook at Echo and Ramadi. He's on Twitter at Echo and Ramadi. You can also check out SaveTheBrave.org, the organization which works with veterans. Um, and it's also in conjunction with some of the guys that he was commanding during his time in Iraq. My website is www.globalrecon.net. My Instagram account is IGRecon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. My co-host Chantel Taylor is on Instagram at mission underscore critical. Her Facebook is Battleworn, the memoir of a combat medic in Afghanistan. And she has a very good book out called Battleworn, the memoir of a combat medic in Afghanistan. Available everywhere books are sold. The easiest place to get it is on Amazon. As always, we appreciate the feedback and the weekly listeners. And we are continuing to give you guys the best possible content that we can. And we'll see you in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.